That is a tough act to follow. <laughs> Great job, little ones. Well, good morning. It is, a, it is a gift to get to be with you all this morning. I'm going to go ahead and read our sermon text today, which is Isaiah 65. And we're going to look at verses 17 through 25. Now, throughout Advent, we've been uh, reading and focusing on the passages found in the Revised Common Lectionary. We've been looking at the Old Testament texts, which anticipate Christ's coming. Uh, so we are looking at this text, uh, a text that Christians for hundreds of years have been looking at on this Sunday, and, Christians, and a text which thousands of Christians around the world, millions of Christians around the world are focusing on together. So let's, let's join them as we, as we hear from God's Word. For I will create new heavens and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. In her, a nursing infant will no longer live only a few days, or an, old man, or an old man not live out his days. Indeed, the one who dies at a hundred years old will be mourned as a young man, and the one who misses a hundred years will be considered cursed. People will build houses and live in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and others live in them. They will not plant and others eat from my people's lives will be like the lifetime of a tree. My chosen ones will fully enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor without success or bear children destined for disaster, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord along with their descendants. Even before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the cattle. But the serpent's food will be dust. They will not do what is evil or destroy on my entire holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, this morning we thank you for the promise that you will make all things new. So, Lord, we pray that by your Spirit we would be able to cling to that promise. Father, use this text to speak to us, to inform our hearts, to train our hopes. Father, help us to see Jesus in and through it. And it's in his great name that we pray. Amen. Well, friends, in case you didn't know, Christmas Eve is exactly one week from today. I think some of us are just getting used to the idea that the Christmas season was upon us, and now it feels as though it is blowing past us at warp speed. Now, this is a time of year that brings a lot of joy. Right? Many of us have already been having a great time, and there is still a good deal of happy anticipation for what lies ahead but despite the joy that the Christmas season brings every year, in the end, I think sometimes we are left feeling a bit empty. 
That the parties and gifts often fall short of delivering the anticipated magic, leaving us wanting more. Well, in our text this morning, we can see that this feeling isn't just about Christmas. It's about our constant search for fulfillment in a fallen world. See, no matter how intense our joys may be in this life, nothing is really ever as it should be. And this reality can, feel, can leave us feeling continually displaced. But this passage assures us that a future will come in which everything, everything will be made new. God himself will come and he will provide lasting satisfaction, the lasting satisfaction that this world just can't deliver on. And this truth can help reframe the season's occasional letdowns as it reminds us of our innate longing for something greater, that something being the kingdom of heaven, right? the new heavens and the new earth. Something that we're told about in the book of Revelation as a place in which God himself will dwell with us. And friends, that is the thing that makes the new heavens the new heavens, the new earth the new earth. The fact that God will dwell with us. That is the thing that all of our souls truly crave. Isaiah's words in chapter 65 of the book that bears his name, they assure us that this kingdom, this kingdom that's coming, it's not a distant fantasy. No, instead it is a promised reality. So this morning we're going to dwell on that promised reality as we as we look at this vision of our true home. And we'll examine three aspects of home. First, that home is material. Second, that home is where peace reigns. And third, home is where God is. Now let's go ahead and dig into that first point. Let's read once more verses 17 through 18. For I will create new heavens and a new earth, the past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating, for I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. Now, for a while, there's a show on NBC called The Good Place. I don't know if anyone here has watched it. Um, and it was more or less about heaven or a particular vision of heaven. And heaven in the show was referred to as The Good Place, hence the name. And when the, when the show opens, we're introduced to our main characters who all think that they are in the good place, only to find out that they are actually in the bad place. Well, as the series winds on, they end up getting to visit the real, the actual good place, the place in which those who did good are rewarded for their good deeds. Again, this is a particular vision of what heaven is, but there's a problem. The people that they encounter in the good place are extremely bored. See, while in the good place, the main characters encounter Hypatia of Alexandria. Uh, she was a 5th century mathematician and philosopher, and a woman who, according to one Christian source at the time, surpassed all the philosophers of her own time. So the characters run into Hypatia, who explains to them the downside of the good place. She says, on paper, this is paradise, but as it goes on forever, you become this glassy-eyed mush person. 
Now, I bring this up because this is a common perception of what heaven will ultimately be like. A sort of disembodied existence in which the same thing goes on forever and in, it, and in which we eventually become glassy-eyed mush people. But that is not the biblical vision of the end. Our hope and God's promise is not in some ethereal, otherworldly, cloud-sitting, harp-playing existence. Not to say that there won't be harps. Sorry, Gretchen, I'm sure there will be harps. (laughs) But the point is that the vision of the end that we're given in Scripture is a resurrection vision. We will be raised bodily, and we will live on a restored earth. The vision of the end isn't completely disconnected from current reality. Instead, it is a restored and renewed reality, creation as it should be. See, what we have to look forward to is an earthy existence. The Bible is firm throughout in its insistence that this creation is good, that it's not an afterthought as in various ancient Greek and pagan philosophies. Nor is it a deceitful trap as it's presented in much of uh, Eastern philosophy. No, instead it is a precious work of an eternal artist. And that affects the way the Bible speaks, speaks about the afterlife throughout. After, the afterlife is not an abandonment of creation. No, it's, it's the rescue, the resurrection and restoration of creation. Now, what do we do with the, the newness language that we see in this text and in other places, like in Revelation 21? Right? Doesn't the description of a new heavens and a new earth give the sense that God is going to start over? Well, I don't, I don't think that that's the case, because the Bible often pairs language of newness and restoration. For example, if you look at Psalm 51, in verse 10 we read, God created me a... Cl- or, I'm sorry, I've memorized it in a different version. Create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. In the first line here, we see creation language. God, create a clean heart for me. But the very next line is language of rehab, of restoration. Lord, please renew me, renew my heart. The me doesn't go away. Or take Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. This is described by Paul as a present reality for Christians. When we are joined to Christ, our hearts are restored. They're they're remade. We become a new creation. So then does that mean that upon conversion, we're obliterated and a doppelganger is put in our place? No. No, what's being talked about here is our transformation. It is such a radical change that you can say the old is gone and the new has come. And it's the same language that we see in the new creation, but it is still us. And in Romans 8, we read about the longing of creation itself. In verses 20 through 22, Paul writes, For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. The thing being eagerly longed for isn't obliteration, but restoration, the renewal of all things. Friends, this is our ultimate hope. 
And it is a resurrection hope. Now, you might be wondering about those who have died before the culmination of these promises, before the, resurrec the resurrection and the renewal of all things. Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism has a helpful summary of the Bible's teaching on that topic. Uh, question 37 asks this, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? And the answer is, the souls of believers at their death are made perfect in holiness and immediately pass into glory. Their bodies, being still united to Christ, rest in their graves until the resurrection. There is a period often referred to as the intermediate state in which the souls of believers after they have died are present with Jesus. And Jesus himself referred to this as paradise when he comforted the man on the cross next to him saying, today you will see me in paradise. But friends, that's not the ultimate hope. The hope is in a resurrection, resurrection life in a restored creation. This is a work that Christ began with his first advent and one that will come to fruition at his second. Tim Keller writes, The book of Genesis tells us that when God made this world, he looked upon the physical creation and called it good. He loves and cares for the material world. The fact of Jesus' resurrection and the promise of a new heavens and new earth show clearly that he still cares for it. The ultimate purpose of Jesus is not only individual salvation and pardon for sins, but also the renewal of this world, the end of disease, poverty, injustice, violence, suffering, and death. The climax of history is not a higher form of disembodied consciousness, but a feast. God made the world with all its colors, tastes, lights, sounds, with all its life forms living in interdependent systems. It is now marred, stained, and broken, and he will not rest until he has put it right. Friends, our hope is in the fact that God will heal this world, that he will put it right. Now, in verse 17 of our text, we read, For I will create new heavens and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Now, what's translated here as past events could also be rendered former things, and what specifically is in mind? Well, the Old Testament, the Old Testament scholar Bob File in his uh, commentary writes, the former things are specified further in Revelation 21.4 as death and its grim satellites, mourning, crying, and pain. The statement does not mean that God's mighty acts or his innumerable kindnesses will be forgotten, nor even that what is good in this present creation will disappear. Rather, all that is good here and now, cleansed from sin and decay, will come to full beauty in the new creation. But sin, sorrow, tragedy, and especially bereavement will be no more. Now, we have been conditioned to believe that such things are not possible. But I think it's worth pointing out that the main alternative argument put forward, which I think is the secular argument, also comes with the whole set of faith assumptions. Assumptions that unintentionally strip us of the things that matter most, like justice, right? For in that secular worldview, there, there's no lasting standard, no true standard of right and wrong. 
It strips us of beauty and love for everything gets boiled down to and explained away by evolutionary adaptations. And that view strips us of hope. Right? Where is the hope in a view that basically says when we die, that is it. We rot in the ground. No, we need something more. And with the promise of resurrection, we receive the gift of hope. Our present reality is not all that there is. One day, all things will be made new. So allow yourself for just a minute to imagine that new reality. All of the good things here in this life, the things that bring joy, the glimpses of true home that you get, all of those things, but now without all of the things that keep us from being able to enjoy them. Hikes without knee pain, gardening without back pain, relationships without the taint of sin, no baggage, no distrust, no hurt, no pain, food without calories. I don't know if that's real, but it'd be really cool. The full beauty of all that God has made, cleansed from sin and decay. A real, material home. So our home is material. And our home is also the place where peace reigns. Isaiah, in our passage, uses beautiful imagery from his age to paint us a picture of the joys of the world to come. So let's start reading in verse 19. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. In her, a nursing infant will no longer live only a few days, or an old man not live out his days. Indeed, the one who dies at a hundred years old will be mourned as a young man, and the one who misses a hundred years will be considered cursed. This gives us a picture of a place in which there will be no more weeping, no more crying. The new heavens and the new earth will be such a place, and death itself will come to an end. Now, you may be thinking after reading verse 20, like, wait, that looks like a reference to death. But what we see in verse 20 is actually a poetic construction known as a litotes. That's, a, that's your $20 word for today, litotes which is a poetic understatement designed to imply its opposite. It's not saying that there will be death in the new creation, for this would contradict the forever statement of verse 18 and the no longer of verse 19. And death would certainly be reason for weeping. But even more importantly, it would contradict the death of death that was declared in Isaiah 25, verses 7 through 8, where we read, On this mountain he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations, when he swallowed up death once and for all. And the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. What we read in verse 20 where the, young, where the one who dies at 100 years old is considered a young man, that, that is a poetic construction meant to convey the death of death itself, the overthrow of death. Again, Bob Fial writes, this is glorious poetry. Isaiah has already stated that death will be destroyed, and he is not contradicting himself here. Rather, 
He's taking examples from the whole of life in our world in which death invades and showing that in the full life of the new creation, death will no longer have power over any part of our experience. No more suffering. No more death. And in the verses that follow, we see the end of injustice as well. Let's look at verses 21 through 23. People will build houses and live in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and others live in them. They will not plant and others eat. For my people's lives will be like the lifetime of a tree. My chosen ones will fully enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor without success or bear children destined for disaster. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord along with their descendants." Isaiah is writing to the people of Israel before they're going to experience all of the things that Isaiah is saying will come to an end. He's writing to them before they will experience exile, but exile is coming. It's something that Isaiah predicts, as well as their return from exile. The fate awaiting his original audience was the opposite of these words here. The people were about to see their labor wasted, because foreign invaders would be enjoying the work of their hands. They were about to face horrible injustice and unspeakable atrocities. But Isaiah consoles his people with this word. There will come a day when injustice will cease, when your work will no longer be toil, and you will be able to fully enjoy the work of your hands. Again, take just a minute to imagine that. God created us with the dignity of and capacity for meaningful work. Work is a good thing. But think about all of the ways in which our work gets turned into toil. There are unjust practices all around us, people who snub us or try to use us, tasks that go unappreciated. The average person will spend 90,000 hours at work over a lifetime. That's a third of the average person's life. And if your primary work is in the home raising kids, well, then it's your whole life. Your whole life is work, right? Well, in the kingdom, the promise is that even our work will be redeemed. It will be a joy instead of toil. We get glimpses of that here and now. We get tastes of that. We can find joy in what we're doing, but we often are confronted by things that, that that are hard, that hurt, that again take our work from being a joy and turn it into labor. But the hope that God holds out to us is peace instead of suffering and injustice. And just to drive home that point even further, Isaiah gives us this image in verse 25. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle. But the serpent's food will be dust. They will not do what is evil or destroy on my entire holy mountain, says the Lord. The peace and harmony of the new heavens and new earth will extend to the whole created order. Right, the words of verse 25 echo the description in, 11, in chapter 11, verses 9 through 11, of the kingdom of the Davidic Messiah whose coming will restore Eden. There we read, an infant will play beside the cobra's pit and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain. 
For the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. Again, this is poetic language, but the image it puts forward is beautiful. One in which peace extends the relationships even between predators and their prey. Ollie once asked me when we talked about heaven at one point, and I think maybe it wasn't his very first question, maybe second or third question. He really wanted to know, will there be dinosaurs in the new heavens and the new earth? And I don't know. It'd be cool. I'd like to see some dinosaurs. But what I do know is that if they are there, we don't need to be afraid of them. Not because they're going to get different teeth or because they're going to be any less awe-inspiring, but because the extent of God's peace will reign even over the animal kingdom. There will be peace throughout the whole creation. And the mourning of creation itself, as well as the mourning of humanity, will finally come to an end. And why is this? Why will this be true of our new home? Well, because our new home is where God is. All of this will be possible because, as we read in verse 24, even before they call, this is God speaking, even before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. And why is God able to assure us of this? Well, because he's God and he can assure us, and he can assure us of whatever he wants. But more true about this kingdom, more what's so good about the promise of this new kingdom, he can assure us of this because he will be there. He will be with us. Without the presence of sin, without all of the things that, that cause us to run away from him, we will have unfettered communion with our God. We see this reality declared even more robustly in, in the passage we opened our worship with. In Romans 21.3, which also talks about the new heavens and the new earth, we read this, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Friends, this is the fulfillment of all of our longings. This is the thing that will enable us to feel home. See, home, that concept, it exercises a power influence over all of human life. Foreign-born Americans spend billions of dollars annually to visit the communities in which they were born. Children who never find a place where they feel they belong often carry an incapacity for attachment into adulthood. Many of us have fond memories of times, people, and places where we felt truly at home. However, if we ever have the opportunity to go back to those places we remember so fondly, it's not the same, is it? When Katie and I were in college, we had a, a sushi place that was our go-to. It was like our, one of our kind of consistent date spots. And uh, after we moved away from where we lived when we were in college, uh, we, we talked about that place. And we built it up in our minds. Like, it was, it was the place. It was the best sushi ever. About five years after college, I had the opportunity to go back and essentially like relive a night in college. My brother-in-law was, uh, went to the same school that we went to, and I went and I hung out with him um, and his friends in his dorm. It's like, oh, I'm still young. This is cool. Um, 
And then we ended up going to the sushi place. And it was not the same. I think the sushi place was the same, but my memory of it, oh, it did not. It, it, it was mediocre at best. Right. Home is elusive. The memory of home can, can be powerfully evoked by certain sights and sounds, even smells, but they can only arouse a desire. They can't fulfill it. And I think we can feel this in a unique way around the holidays, right? especially Christmas. Right? We work, we prepare, hoping that finally this year, our family gatherings will deliver the experience of warmth, of joy, of comfort, of love that we want from it. But so often, these events just don't deliver. There's a German word that gets at this concept. The word is Sehnsucht. Uh, dictionaries will tell you that there's no direct English equivalent, but it denotes a profound homesickness or longing. But it has transcendent overtones. See, every single one of us has what the theologian Karl Barth referred to as a God sickness, a longing for God that nothing else will satisfy. And C.S. Lewis explains it this way in his famous essay, The Weight of Glory. He says, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. We will not feel at home until we are with God. But the hope of the new heavens and the new earth is that God's dwelling will be with humanity and he will live with us. The peace and the harmony that we previously described, it's merely a byproduct of that. Our hope is an unfettered communion, union with God. And this is something that we glimpsed in the first advent. Right? Jesus inaugurated the kingdom. He began the transformation of creation. He defeated sin and death by dying and rising for us. But this reality will come to fruition in his second advent. Right? We're able to get a glimpse of home in Jesus. But there will come a day when it fully arrives and we will finally, truly be home. Now, some have leveled criticisms of those who hang on to beliefs like this, of those who seem to place all of their hope in an afterlife. Uh, one of the most famous critiques came from Karl Marx, who charged that religion is, quote, the opiate of the masses. That is, it's a seductive, or excuse me, that, that may be seductive, but primarily it's a sedative that makes people passive towards injustice because, you know, there's a pie in the sky someday. But to that idea, Tim Keller writes, that may be true of some religions that teach people that this material world is unimportant or illusory. Christianity, however, teaches that God hates the suffering and oppression of this material world so much, he was willing to get involved in it and to fight against it. Properly understood, Christianity is by no means the opiate of the people. It's more like the smelling salts. And hope in a new heavens and new earth, hope in the God who will one day set everything right, has led Christians throughout the ages to be powerful agents of change. 
Rebecca McLaughlin writes, It motivated Christians in the fourth century to create places where the sick and poor could be cared for, places we now call hospitals. It motivated Martin Luther King to believe that nonviolent resistance could overcome violent oppression. And it motivates Christians today to sacrifice themselves across the world in the service of others. She goes on to quote a New York Times op-ed from the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and human rights activist Nicholas Kristof, who says, Go to the front lines at home or abroad. In the battles against hunger, malaria, prison rape, obstetric fistula, Lord help me, human trafficking or genocide. And some of the bravest people you meet are evangelical Christians or conservative Catholics, similar in many ways, who truly live their faith. See, the belief that God will set things right gives us the gift of hope. Hope in a future reality. And hope in a future reality radically impacts the way that we live in and experience the present for the better. You can think of it this way. Let's say there are two men who are captured and imprisoned. There's no hope of of escape anytime soon. And just before their capture and detention, one of the men learns that he has lost his whole family, while the other man learns that his wife and his child are still alive. Who do you think is going to have a better chance of survival? They may be facing the same exact circumstances, the same type of mistreatment. Who is going to, 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 who's going to be more likely to endure to the end? Well, it's the man who still has hope, isn't it? This is something that, that we all know. It's, it's intuitive because we are hope-shaped creatures. We need hope in order to survive. I feel like I, I got to experience this in a, in a very small way. Um, when Katie and I first brought our, our son Oliver home from the hospital, um, when we first brought him home, everything about the experience of being a new parent was terrifying. Just everything he did, all of our responses to it just added more terror. It was great. Um, and when, uh, when we first tried to, to um, get him to sleep, you know, at night we, we put him in a little bassinet that was by our bed, and we were convinced that uh, like every sound that he made was, was him dying. It's like, oh my goodness, this is, this is it. And then if there was any length of time where there's an absence of sound, it's like, oh my goodness, he's dead. Like, that's, that's, that's the end. Um, and then when it came, like, with, with each new kind of milestone, when it came time to try to teach him how to sleep through the night, and we reached a point where I was convinced, like, no one in our house is ever going to sleep. Like, I'd, I got to enjoy this thing for 29 years, and that was cool, um, but now it's gone. And then potty training, it's like, okay, he's going to go to high school in diapers. Like, there's no, there's no way. Over and over and over again, each new stage brought just so much angst and, and terror into our lives. But when we brought our second child home, when, when Harper came along, I don't remember feeling any of that. It was so much easier, not because Harper was easier, but because we had hope. Right? We had been there before. We had seen, okay, eventually they do sleep. Babies make sounds, and sometimes they don't, and it's okay usually. Um, we did find, though, that potty training a girl was significantly easier than potty training a boy. But we had hope for the future, and that had massive implications for the way that we experienced our present circumstances. They were the same circumstances, 
But we could, but we could face them with joy. We, we were much braver in light of those circumstances. Well, friends, in Christ, we have the gift of hope. Hope of our own resurrection and everlasting life in the new heavens and the new earth. In Christ, sin, which separated us from God, has been dealt with definitively, which enables that future reality where we will be able to dwell with him. We have hope of finally arriving home, our real home. And because of that, no matter what we might face, we can know in an ultimate sense that everything is going to be okay. Your Christmas this year, it might be fantastic or it might be disappointing. And either way, you are going to be okay. Because someday, you will arrive home. Friends, there are so many things that are completely beyond our control. So many things that can go wrong. But our hope is in a future reality. And that hope can and should greatly impact our present experiences. Christ has come, and he will come again. And when he does, he's going to bring heaven with him. Friends, you're going to be okay. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. The promise of the restoration of all things. And with that, God, we thank you for the gift of hope. And Lord, we pray that you would that you'd place that gift in our hearts, Lord. That you would enable us to, to carry it out with us this week and, and, and beyond, God. Lord, it is so easy for us to place our hope in things that will ultimately disappoint. And that's why we thank you so deeply for the gift of everlasting hope, of an unshakable assurance, a living hope of eternal life, of an inheritance kept safe in heaven by you. So Lord, help us to cling to that. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on that hope. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and to say with, with conviction, Lord, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Help us to believe that he truly has everything that we need. And it's in him that we pray. Amen.